Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. KFI AM 640. Live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Good morning. It's the Bill Handel's show. Some of the top stories we're following for you. Governor Newsom has signed a new California state budget. It's like $262 billion, plus or minus. Who needs who needs to be that accurate when it's that much money? And about a hundred billion of it is part of a California comeback. It's spending and tax relief to help Californians recover from the pandemic. Pope Francis has been discharged from a hospital in Rome. He's back at the Vatican just ten days after a surgery to. Um, boy, I don't feel right saying this. We're talking about the Pope, but they took out half of his colon. Because he had a lot of, I think it was, uh, never mind, it's gross. His colon got really narrow. Or his part of his intestine got really, really narrow, and they had to remove a bunch of stuff from that part of his body. Okay? Why did you make me have to talk that way about the Pope? Peace be with you. And unto you? No, what do we say? And also with your spirit. And also with your spirit. Thank you. Thanks, John. All right. Well, you know, we have fires going on uh, in California and also a big one in Oregon that's relevant because it's a big fire, but also because it uh, can interfere with getting some of the electricity into the state that we need. And unfortunately, we're breaking a lot of records this year. We have broken the record for most fires so far. And. I think we're over 140,000 acres burned. Um, You've got the Beckworth complex, which was two fires, the sugar fire and the, uh, what's the name of the other one, Jen? The complex fire is the sugar fire and the Dota fire. Dota. Okay. I don't know why. I can't remember Dota. I think it, I always think of Carol Dota, the stripper in San Francisco. Oh, and that helps you remember it. Good tip. Um, so that thing's, you know, they're they're slowly getting it under control, but that's causing a lot of havoc. And you got the bootleg fire is that fire up in Oregon that's been affecting uh, electric transmission. Here's what's going on. And this is this has been a narrative for some time that the fires are getting worse, right? More of them, they're more destructive, they're hotter. They're more intense. And we talk a lot about temperatures, right? You have all these heat waves that contributing to the increase in the fire problem. But apparently we're finding out the real X factor here is how dry the vegetation is. So if everything else is equal, if heat, air humidity, winds, terrain, all of which, you know, dictate what happens with the fire. Assuming all those are equal, the drier the vegetation, the more intense the fire is going to be. And intensity means how hot is that fire? 
But also, how does that fire behave? Because you hear about a fire started and then it leapt the freeway or it leapt a river. Well, apparently drier vegetation increases the likelihood that that kind of stuff is going to happen. In fact, the lava fire, there was the lava fire up in, uh, what, Shasta Trinity National Forest. And that was was last month. And for a very brief time, it was the biggest fire um, of the season, 25,000 acres. But what happened is it took 10 days for that fire, which was started by lightning, it sparked 10 days, 25,000 acres. The sugar fire, which, which merged with the Dota fire and is now the Beckworth Complex fire, that started on uh, July 2nd. Let's look at 10 days for that fire. 90,000 acres in 10 days. And that's because of how dry the vegetation is. And we're, we think pretty much this sugar fire is going to be the first 100,000-acre mega fire of the year. Why is it so dry? Okay, let's look at the uh, city of Los Angeles. If we go back to July of last year uh, and we count up through June, just last month, 41% of our typical rainfall. Up in the Sierra region? It's the third driest year ever, or at least ever since they started measuring it. The snowpack. The snowpack is way below where we would normally have it. So all of those things, there's not as much rain falling. And then the snowpack, the thing with the snowpack is we think about it usually in terms of that's where we get a lot of our water, right? So you build up a snowpack and then it melts and then we get it and we drink it and we shower with it. But the other thing that happens is when the snowpack melts, the water comes down. I mean, this is so elementary, but you don't think about it. And it keeps things moist. So if you don't have as much snowpack, when it does start to melt, there's less water. As it starts to come down, it's all gone sooner meaning the drier conditions are higher. We're seeing fires at higher elevations because of this. And the, these fires are really starting to get, it's almost like they're sentient and they're getting clever. That sugar fire, there was a point at which they had it 70% contained. In fact, four days after that sugar fire started, they had it 70% contained. And then they were like, okay, we're doing heat imagery, and the area where it first started is not hot anymore, so let's go down here to this end of the fire and fight it. And then guess what? An ember, one ember went back, started up again. All the firefighting effort on the ground was at the other end of the fire. And the new eruption was so fast that they, they couldn't just go, well, let's go back over there and fight it. They actually had to disengage from fighting that fire. 
That's how dangerous it became for a period of time. And they they kept bombarding it from the air and they had to look for where can we get boots back on the ground. So that's the kind of thing. It makes it impossible to even plan a strategy for fighting some of these fires. And it's and it's it's yes, it's the heat. Yes, it's the terrain in which a lot of these fires start. But now we're finding it's the unbelievable dryness of the vegetation itself. And what what do you do to mitigate that? Terrain, you could go in and clear breaks or do something to mitigate the ability of the terrain to spread a fire more quickly. I'm not saying it's that that it's cheap or easy, but you could do it. But what do you do when there's just no water? Hydrogen. Hydrogen is the answer to all of our clean energy needs. We're done. We don't have to worry about any more global warming. We don't have to worry about noxious emissions creating air pollution. Hydrogen. Except, oh boy, does it have a long way to go before it's really a viable answer to anything. Hydrogen, I didn't know this, that hydrogen is the most common element in the, on the planet. But it is almost always mixed and attached to other stuff, right? In other words, you can't just go, hey, look at all this big, look at this big pit full of hydrogen. Let's just dig it out of there and use it. So currently in the oil industry, for example, um, they use hydrogen. They call it gray hydrogen, and they separate hydrogen from natural gas. So two things. One, you're still using fossil fuels to do this. Number two, it's pretty expensive. It's expensive to do it, and then the product is expensive. It's not going to work to replace uh, our energy sources under that under that uh, approach. There are a few hydrogen cars on the roads now. You know, you read about, oh, it's a hydrogen car, and you can fuel it up in just a few minutes, and then you're driving down the road, and the only thing coming out of that tailpipe is clean water. But there's not that many hydrogen cars out there, and there are even fewer hydrogen fueling stations. Well, there's a company that seems to be at the beginning of what could lead to some real breakthroughs. It's called ITM Power. Uh, it has millions and millions of dollars in contracts. I think it has over $200 million in, in contracts right now. It is growing like crazy. And they think they found a way to harness hydrogen that is way less expensive and that is a clean process. You know, one of the things about trying to get away from fossil fuels is that fossil fuels are like that neighbor who keeps coming around all the time and you can't get rid of them. The move to electric cars, that's great. People say, oh, electric cars, no fossil fuels, except how is the electricity being generated? When you charge your all-electric car, how is the electricity you're using to charge your car being generated? In a lot of cases, it's being generated with fossil fuels. So in a way, it's, it's, if it's a step in the right direction, it's a small step. 
Now, what this company is doing is two things. Number one, they have a new device to separate the hydrogen. They're called electrolyzers. And uh, actually, there have been electrolyzers around for a long time. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know exactly how an electrolyzer separates the hydrogen from the oxygen in the water, but it does it. And their version of the electrolyzer is better because it can be turned on and off very quickly. The old school electrolyzers that takes a long time to power them up and then to power them down, meaning you're using a lot of electricity to run the thing that you're not getting any benefit. And they are trying to use only solar and wind power to power the electrolyzer, which splits the, the water, extracts the hydrogen, and that's a completely clean, green process all the way through. So that seems to be the future here. The problem is you're going to have to scale that up in a massive way. Because they think hydrogen can be used for almost everything. Long-haul trucks, regular cars, uh, heating your home, cooling your home, but not yet. And it's just a matter, I think, now of when, how soon. Will it be five years or will it be 50 years? Will any of us be around to see a mostly hydrogen um, power setup? But it's very interesting, the strides that they're making. All right, let's bring on Jim Ryan from ABC News and talk about the aftermath of the collapse of that condo in Florida because, as you might imagine, uh, people are going out and inspecting a lot of buildings, and unfortunately, they're finding a lot of bad news. Jim, good morning. Yeah, they're finding some problems, Wayne, but would they have found those problems otherwise? I think the bar, by the, the because of the t- June uh, 24th collapse, that bar has been raised in terms of what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable and what's going to cause real concern among residents there. Another building was evacuated this week. This was a, a uh, an apartment building in Miami Beach, a two-story apartment building, but it's 84 years old, and they found some deteriorating concrete inside that building, and so the decision was made to go ahead and evacuate. The owners say that they were planning to demolish that building by December anyway, so this may have just sped that process up, but other buildings as well have been looked at, and uh, the residents have been pulled out at least temporarily while further tests are being done so yeah there are folks across that area who sort of have the have have the jitters right now uh, as they see what happened to champlain tower south on june 24th wing now so the mayor of miami dade ordered an audit right now did he did he order an audit of every single building in miami dade or only certain kinds of buildings no she, her her audit was ordered only for buildings that are either five stories or more or are 40 years old or, or older. So the one this week, it was like two stories, but it was 84 years old. So it easily fit into those two criteria. And so, But other buildings are being looked at, including the sister tower of Champlain Tower South, the North Tower. Now, they took a close look at it and have declared it perfectly fine. It doesn't have any of the same issues that the South Tower apparently had. You didn't have exposed rebar in the parking garage and, and water issues because of weather stripping or, or weather you know, uh, prevention methods that were being used. And so the North Tower is fine. Still, some people have been nervous enough that they've decided to move out of there anyway. The difference seems to be here, Wayne, 
it was that uh, the North Tower was maintained better. They, you know, they did a continual process of inspecting and fixing over the last 40 years since it was built right alongside the other one. Same materials, same plans, and very close to the other building. But uh, the maintenance was a regular thing instead of being allowed to get to the emergency status that it was with the South Tower. They had $15 million worth of renovations that were due on that South Building before it collapsed, Wayne. Do you know if there were separate HOAs for the two towers? Because it seems bizarre if it was one complex with one homeowners association that one tower would get all the love maintenance wise and another tower would be neglected. No, well, they were they were owned separately. There were separate condo boards that were in charge okay. of maintaining mm-hmm. these two things. And, and interestingly, you know, they they weren't owned by the same folks and managed by the same company. They had uh, completely separate um, systems and separate personnel and separate policies, which spaced out that maintenance that needed to be done on a regular building on, <laughs> over the course of 40 years. As you know, the Champlain Tower South and the North Building were in the process of their 40-year recertifications. They were both built in 1981, and we're both looking at this recertification process. Wow. So also I know that um, there's a, there were some structural engineers who went to the site, and they looked at the collapsed tower, and they all agreed that it seemed like the amount of rebar that was put into the important structural parts of that tower that collapsed were less, that that was less rebar than the original plans had called for, leading them to believe that perhaps somebody decided to cut some corners and not build that tower, you know, the way that basically it was supposed to be built in the first place. And and I don't know if you know the answer to this. If they were owned separately and run separately, I wonder if they were built by different contractors that that one there'd be one entity who would have a reason to try to shave costs on one tower but not the other Hmm. it's an interesting question i think that that uh, i mean the mayor there the mayor of surfside the town where this happened says that they were built at the same time using the same plans using the same materials Mm -hmm. Uh, but were they built by the same contractors that's an interesting question and i think that once the investigation is up you can have, you've already got uh, civil lawsuits that are flying around. There are class action suits that are being filed right now against the city of Surfside, against the building owners. Uh, you, are you going to have criminal charges mm-hmm. if somebody did skip a step there, if there was some kind of negligence that led to these horrible deaths? By the way, 95 bodies have been found as of this morning, Wayne. Okay. And you know, they, they've stopped doing the daily briefings. It's just too depressing, I think. But, uh, you know, there are another uh, 14 or 15 people thought to be missing in the building. The police there have been cross-referencing the names of people who might have been in the building, who probably were in the building, who might not have been in the building. And they've cut that list down from about 30 people down to... 13 or to 14 people who are thought to still uh, be inside that building, the bodies there. All right, Jim, thank you so much. Really appreciate that update. Thanks, Wayne. All right, Jim Ryan, ABC News correspondent. The five-day work week is dead. That is the headline of one of the many articles that are coming out now. Uh, Because uh, there's been a lot of discussion of this study that they did in Iceland where they 
took the 40-hour work week and they knocked it down to 35 or 36 hours, I guess, depending on who you were. And they say it was a massive success. Everybody was happier with the slightly shorter work week, but productivity remained the same. So the five-day work week is dead. Well, no, the the five-day work week is far from dead. I'm not saying that 100 years from now it won't be a five-day work week or even or even 10 years from now, but it's not dead yet. It is, it is still the standard work week for the majority of people. That's why everybody's working for the weekend remains one of the most relevant popular songs of our time because of the five-day work week. You know my tongue was in my cheek when I said that about that song. Okay. I don't want people going like, oh, man, why is he so far up the butt of that band? No. I mean, it's true. They did the experiment in Iceland, and people were able to do uh, the same amount of work in a few less hours a week. But there has been a long history just to get to the five-day work week as the kind of assumed default. And before I get into that, I recognize there's any number of you that work more than five days a week. I worked six days a week for 28 years. You know... Bill Handel works six days a week, has done that for 30 years, what a long time, you know, so it's very common that people work more than five days a week, but it's still, it's considered now the standard eight hours a day, five days a week. And the reason that we have it is because it didn't used to be that way. If you go back to the 19th century, the beginning of factory work, uh, basically, People were working 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week. Your work week was whatever the boss said it was. Part of that was possible because there there were, well, for a while there were no labor unions at all. And then they started to organize and it took a while for them to build up enough power. So employers really held all the cards. The other reason that you could do it is that a lot of the jobs back then were, uh, I I call them endless work jobs. And what I mean by that is you went to a factory and you made a widget. Well, you're never done. In other words, you could go for two hours and make widgets, 10 hours and make widgets, 20 hours, make widgets. You could always make more widgets. So there was no, there was no like, I'm done for the day because I've done everything I'm supposed to complete today because it was just an endless cycle of tasks. And you might imagine that if you could employ, uh, I'll just throw out numbers, a hundred people have them work 14 hours a day, seven days a week and make a million widgets. Wouldn't you do that instead of having to employ 500 people to make a million widgets in a week? So that's what was happening. Now, unions started organizing, and the very first thing that the unions wanted was they wanted their time back. 
They didn't want to work 14 hours a day, six or seven days a week. So there was strike, 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 strike. In the 1880s, there was a popular union slogan. This is when they were trying to get an eight-hour workday. The slogan was eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. And they started to have some success. Ford Motor Company reduced its work week to 40 hours. That was in 1926. But then it took the Depression, mass strikes, a President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and some people, other people in the federal government that had a reformer mindset. All of that had to happen for us to get the Fair Labor Standards Act that passed in 1938. And one of the things that it says is, uh, if you work more than 40 hours a week, you get overtime. Now, there were exceptions the moment it was passed. Farm workers, for example, were not covered. Now, today, salaried people generally are not covered by this. And that's why you see a lot of salaried people still working way over 40 hours a week. But many hourly employees have this protection. If you make me work more than 40 hours, you have to pay me overtime. What's interesting is, in the 40s, so this passed in 1938, and then in the 40s and the 50s, there were still people saying, no, 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 it's not enough. We want less than eight hours a day. Eight hours a day is too much. We want... Six hours a day. And there was a pretty considerable movement trying to get six-hour workdays. And that went on through the 40s and the 50s and into the 60s. And then here's what happened. Here's what, here's what probably killed that. In the 70s, there was a massive spike in unemployment. And what the labor unions had to do at that point is they had to put all of their focus on saving people's jobs they were no longer in a position to say, we're going to strike if you don't reduce our workday to six hours. And so it lost the momentum. So ever since, ever since then, it's been, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. There are a few companies that are experimenting with shorter work weeks. You're also having companies that are experiencing with flexible schedules, uh, experimenting with flexible schedules. And you know what happens then? Some people work 30 hours a week because they're able to get everything done. Some people still have to work 50 hours a week because that's how long they need. So, yeah, there is some inkling that we're going to revisit the eight-hour day, five-day-a-week situation. But to say that it's dead is uh, wrong. It's wrong. Good news for Catholics. Pope Francis out of the hospital in Rome, back at the Vatican, just 10 days after undergoing surgery to remove half of his colon. Um, let me see if I can do this transition. Colon makes me think of poop, and poop makes me think of Washington, D.C. That works. Well, Democrats in the Senate have announced a... Um, it's sort of a budget deal. It's an agreement in principle about broad strokes for a three and a half trillion dollar 
uh, reconciliation bill. And they're using reconciliation so that they can pass this bill without a filibuster, without too many amendments to it, and not needing Republican votes. So can I just say something about that? Yes, technically it would be true that through the reconciliation process, they could do it without any Republican votes. But before everybody gets all happy, there is zero guarantee that they're going to get the Democratic votes. You've got at least two Democratic senators who don't necessarily uh, toe the party line. Joe Manchin, West Virginia, Kirsten Cinema, Arizona. They're already talking about I mean, Joe Manchin in particular is very big on, I'm not going to vote for anything unless it's fully paid for. I'm not going to vote for anything if it means more debt, more borrowing to pay for it. I'm not going to do it. So using reconciliation to kind of neutralize the Republicans isn't the end of the battle at all. But they have, so they have this deal in principle and you know, you hear about reconciliation. Reconciliation is this special way that you can pass legislation and you don't have to deal with the filibuster, which means you got to get 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. And uh, we didn't even have this for most of our country's history. It was put in the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. And at the time, what's interesting is at the time, they weren't so much worried about, hey, it's too hard to pass laws because we have a filibuster all the time. That's not really what they were worried about. What they were worried about is that the deficit was growing and growing and growing. So what you have to do is, in order to be able to pass something this way, you have to have a resolution. And the resolution says, hey, this is this is what we want to do in the broad strokes. We want to spend about this much money kind of on these things. And then this resolution tells all the different committees what they should do in order to make laws to make this goal happen. It's basically passing um, aspirations, if you will, and then saying, and then you guys all figure it out in your committees. And by doing that, you don't have to deal with the filibuster. And it can only be used for a few things. You can't pass any law by using uh, budget reconciliation. You can only do things that either change the amount that you're going to spend, change the amount of revenue that you're going to get, change the debt limit. Those are the three main areas now. I mean, in Washington, D.C., that's quite a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of what they do is either adjusting taxes, adjusting spending, or, of course, periodically they have to vote to raise the debt ceiling again. But there's also a lot of other stuff that they try to do that doesn't have anything to do with that. So the thing that budget reconciliation does is it's a trade-off. On the one hand... We can pass it with only 50 votes in the Senate, assuming the vice president's going to break that tie if there's a tie. 
But in exchange for it being kind of a fast track way to pass laws, important laws, important laws that can affect your pocketbook, that can affect your job, that can affect the public services that are available to you. In exchange, there's not as much goofing around with amendments that don't have anything to do with the main issues. Because the second you try to add anything that doesn't directly deal with changing spending, changing revenue, or the debt ceiling, boom, you can't use this process anymore. So it's kind of a way of keeping everybody in line. Now, will this work in these fractured times? Will it work when you have at least two Democratic senators who aren't necessarily on board? That remains to be seen. But this is the big announcement. And I guess I just the reason when I think of poop, I think of Washington, D.C., is because it is big news now that they have some broad, vague agreement to start to do something. That's what passes for progress now in Washington. Not, hey, we passed this great law and the president signed it. Let's celebrate. Let's make a big announcement. It's something, it's kind of, because because this is kind of a half-assed part of the process. And they're making a big deal about how great they are that they got this far. That's like a guy going to run a marathon. And after mile two, they stop and take a selfie and celebrate their progress. All right, a federal appeals court has ruled that the law that prohibits 18 to 21-year-olds from buying handguns is unconstitutional. Yeah. First of all, let's look at this court. It's the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, so they cover the following states. Um, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. The lawsuit was brought in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Two young people, one of them is named Natalia Marshall, and uh, the other one is Tanner Hirschfield. They, of course, can't go to a gun store and buy a handgun. And they sued and says it's unconstitutional. Now, Natalia Marshall, her situation is she has an abusive ex-boyfriend. She got a protective order. She grew up in a home with firearms, training with firearms. She thinks handguns are an effective self-defense tool. You put all of that together, and she would like to buy a handgun. She can't. Now, Tanner Hirschfield, um, he wants to buy a handgun from a licensed dealer. We'll get to we'll get to why that's an issue in a second. He wants to buy a handgun from a licensed dealer because he feels that if he buys a handgun from a licensed dealer, then it's pretty much guaranteed that the gun hasn't been used. It's not a stolen gun. 18-year-olds can buy handguns just not from a licensed dealer. Private party sales can happen, and you can sell a handgun to an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old. But licensed dealers can't do it. So, first things first. Without even opening the door right now to whether this is a constitutional violation, which is what the appeals court said. 
that it was. This is freaking stupid. It's the stupidest thing in the world that the avenue of somebody buying a gun that is less scrutinized, i.e. the private party sale, that 18, 19, 20-year-olds can buy a gun that way, but not through the licensed firearms dealer where the transaction is subject to a lot more scrutiny. That's ridiculous. If anything, it should be the other way around, if you're going to draw a distinction. But should we be drawing any distinction at all? This court said, no, we should not. Well, it was a split decision. So two of the judges said, no, we should not. One judge thinks it's totally cool to not let 18, 19, 20-year-olds buy handguns. But we have a real problem in this country with when are you an adult and when are you not an adult, right? So, And, and you hear this all the time. You can serve in the military, but you can't buy a handgun at a gun store. You can serve in the military, but you can't go to a bar and order a drink. And those are cliches now. And the reason that they are cliches is because they're addressing something that's true. There's We got to decide. There's some age at which you are an adult. And once you are an adult, you should have all the same constitutional rights as anybody else. What's next? Okay, the, there'll be an appeal. They'll try to get the case reheard by a full panel. It'll probably end up at the Supreme Court. Something A question this big probably needs to go to the Supreme Court. That already agreed to take up another big issue, which is whether or not the Second Amendment gives you a right to carry a gun outside your home. They've decided to hear that case. This case probably will get to the Supreme Court at some point but not right away because it takes a long time. It might be a different Supreme Court. Bottom line, I think that's right. I think that uh, the Second Amendment should apply equally to 18-year-olds as to 21-year-olds. I know about the research that talks about uh, 18 to 20-year-olds commit gun homicides at four times the rate of older people, but here's the problem. Number one, is it? Do they commit handgun homicide at a rate four times? Because 18-year-olds can buy long guns. And also, what kind of gun homicides are happening? Because a lot of those gun homicides, let's just say, arise from very specific circumstances. That's all I'm going to say about that. You know what I'm talking about. So that's the latest from that world. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Governor Newsom has signed the new California state budget. And as part of this uh, over $250 billion budget, about $100 billion in spending and tax relief to help Californians recover from the pandemic. Haven't you guys in the in news been playing that clip of the guy saying we're going to pay 100% of your rent going back to... Whenever it is. Do you know who that guy is? It's Governor Newsom. 
Doesn't sound like what it happened does not to his sound gravelly. Like him at- what happened to his gravel voice? I I don't know. Did he have a Fauci operation? Remember it- when Fauci kind of had the gravelly voice because he had a node, and they removed the node, and Fauci went and he was like, "Yeah, everybody, I want to tell you about how it is with the coronavirus." Yeah, listen is to that- these dulcet tones. People that have been directly impacted by this pandemic, any of you that have been directly impacted by this pandemic, it does not sound like we you. will pay one hundred percent of your rent going back to april of last year are you we sure get a little bit of april of last i don't year. know why i'm questioning you you're a hundred percent sure that's gavin newsom i got it i gotta say i have more gravelly days than others no but but that i know it doesn't sound like him. it doesn't sound like him and here's the thing i i don't know if you've come across this yet uh if you're on youtube at all these days, before whatever you were trying to watch, like old Norm MacDonald on Saturday Night Live clips, you know, you'll, you'll sometimes you'll get an ad. And there's an ad that I've been seeing a lot, and it's, and it's Governor Newsom, and he's in a dark room. It's just dark around him, and there he is, and it's a close-up shot of his face. And he goes, this is Governor Gavin Newsom. I could use your help right now with this Republican-led recall. And I mean, it's just like how many parking, how many shopping mall parking lots are we going to gravel? Are we going to pave with his gravel voice? So to so that's how I've mostly been hearing him is when that ad pops up. And I'm not exaggerating. This is how gravelly it is. This was yesterday. I'll see if I can. Oh, you have gravel? All of you for being here. And Tammy, thank you for organizing all of us. And and thank you for all the generous words that were spoken by each and every remarkable speaker. I Uh, I I can't stand listening to him anymore. But it's he's all he's all over the map. All right. Well, then I wonder if he's if he uh, bumps up the gravel as an affectation sometimes. I wouldn't, I... Whether you like it or not. I never would have guessed. If you said, who is saying that about we're going to pay all your rent? I would have went, is the budget chief? Is it somebody from the legislature that was instrumental in the budget? I never would have guessed Gavin Newsom. Wow. All right. Yeah, you learn, you live. I think it's supposed to be the other way around. You live, you learn. Hey, let's get into this. Um, The All-Star Game last night, the American League, eight wins in a row over the National League. Uh, As we pointed out earlier, it doesn't mean that the American League has been dominating the entire history of the All-Star Game. In fact, the numbers are pretty even over a long time. But the last eight years, man, it's been all AL. Shohei Otani makes history, starts as a pitcher, starts as a hitter. Uh, didn't really have any hot bat action, but he had a one, two, three, three up, three down first inning. And the reason I bring it up now is because, of course, the big controversy was Major League Baseball in opposition to some voter rights um, laws in Georgia moved the game out of Atlanta and moved it to Colorado. And we don't know yet what effect, if any, that will have on the politics in Georgia. But I can tell you about some times uh, in uh, history, including recent history, where there have been some kind of boycott action around sporting events that worked. 
1961. The Boston Celtics are in the middle of eight straight championships. And they're at an exhibition game in Lexington, Kentucky. And remember, it's 1961. So Bill Russell, who would go on to be in the Hall of Fame, and four other players, they go to a coffee shop and they're not allowed to come in because they're black. They're like, this is BS. So they boycott. And it was national headlines. And I'm not saying that that directly led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act three years later, but there is no doubt it helped build the momentum. In 1965, a similar problem. Uh, You've got the AFL All-Star Game going on in New Orleans, and you've got a bunch of players show up, and the same thing happened. They were denied service somewhere. So 21 black players said, we're not playing this game. And, And a lot of the white players joined them. And guess what? The next day, the league moved the game to Houston. They got the game moved down in one day because of the way that they were treated. In 1973, Billie Jean King said, I am not going to play the U.S. Open. Yes, I'm the two-time defending women's champ, but I'm not going to play because you don't pay men and women the same prize money. Guess what happened? U.S. Open became the first Grand Slam event to pay men and women equally. They did it the same year. The Super Bowl was moved in uh, 1993. The NFL said, hey, Arizona, you did not pass a Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. In 1990 in Arizona, they voted to have it or not have it. And voters said, nah, we don't want it. So the NFL said, oh, you know that Super Bowl that's coming in three years? You're not getting it. We're moving it to California. Guess what happened in 1992? They voted in Arizona to approve a Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And then they got their their thank you, if you will. The NFL put the Super Bowl in Tempe for uh, in 96. At the University of Missouri in 2015, they were having a lot of problems with hate crimes on campus, racist rhetoric on campus. And so the entire football team said, we will not play. We will not practice unless the president of this university quits. He quit. One day after they said, we will not practice or play unless he quits. And uh, not that long ago, 2017, remember when the NBA took their all-star game out of North Carolina because of that bathroom bill, HB2. You have to use the bathroom that matches the genitals that you were born with. The NBA said, we don't like that very much. Took that game. Not going to have it in Charlotte. And then other states that were looking at passing similar laws backed off. And the legislature in North Carolina kind of backpedaled on most of that law and undid most of it. And then Charlotte got the all-star game in 2019. So it can work. It has worked. Whether, you know, whether George is going to say, never mind, we're totally for easier access to voting now because we took such a hit from not having the uh, Major League Baseball All-Star game. I don't know. All right. I ask you, do you have snoo?
No, I'm not trying to be the next Dr. Seuss. I'm talking about the hottest new parenting gadget, the snoo. The snoo is a bassinet. But it's not just any bassinet. It is a robotic bassinet that has artificial intelligence and special sensors. And what it does is it listens for when your baby cries or gets fussy and then through a combination of white noise and rocking motion gets your baby to calm down and fall asleep. Snoo was invented by a pediatrician named Harvey Karp. Harvey Karp, Dr. Harvey Karp, wrote a book, The Happiest Baby on the Block. And uh, he said the way to get babies to fall asleep and stay asleep and to not be so fussy is to recreate as much as possible the conditions of the womb. The snoo is the latest way of doing that using, of course, high tech. They also cost about 1500 bucks. So there's a big status debate going on in the world of parenting. Man, if you go on uh, parenting forums or subreddits and you basically you have the snoo people, the people who have the snoo love it. They love it. They all say it works like crazy, that it's amazing. The snoo will give you, uh, it's, a, it's connected to an app, and it'll show you, it'll track your baby's like sleeping time and quiet time. And you've got people on these forums posting screenshots. Look, my baby went 10 hours without causing a ruckus. Look at me. And then you have other people who are like, screw you, pal. You're just some rich, yuppie parent who doesn't want to do the hard work of raising a baby. So it is not without some controversy. Of course, there's a, there's some class warfare elements to the people who hate the snoo because it's very expensive. But you don't have to buy it. Because if you have one baby, how long do you need it? So you can actually rent the snoo for, I think it's 150 bucks a month. And I guess use it, you know, use it for however many months you need until your baby grows out of being a baby. And then you're done and you can return it or people are selling them. So someone will buy a snoo, use it, resell it. You could get a used snoo for maybe 500 bucks. And it's so popular that a scam has now developed because anytime there's an opportunity for a scam, scammers will figure it out. So it is a connected Internet of Things device. When you rent a snoo, you give them your credit card number and they charge you and they activate the device so you can connect it to the app and use it because it's all connected to the cloud. So here's what the scammers are doing. They'll rent one of these snoo bassinets. Then they'll immediately cancel the credit card so they can't be charged. Then they'll sell that snoo to an unsuspecting victim who finds out soon enough that there's a problem because since the company can't charge the credit card, they deactivate the device. And then you call up Snoo and go, hey, I bought this from somebody and it doesn't work anymore. And they go, oh, yeah, 
because that was a rental and they stopped paying. Here, here's what you can do, though. You can start renting it for 150 bucks a month if you want. So I guess uh, two things. One, few more years, parents won't have to do anything. We need an AI robotic uh, milk milker. That's not a good phrase for what I'm talking about. But, you know, you have breast pumps or whatever. We need some kind of robotic AI thing that will just automatically, like, you know how Roombas can find their own charger? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, can, they know where their charger is. So we need AI robotic breast pumps that sit, they're just on the shelf or whatever, and then they know you're lactating, and they, like, literally come over, attach themselves to your breast, pump your milk, take it away, feed your baby. That other part sounds terrifying. In the snoo, and and then you don't have to do anything as a parent anymore, except post screenshots of all your baby tech. No, I just see things going terribly wrong, and you're just sitting there, and all of a sudden you're attacked by this Mm -hmm. Uber pumper. Yeah, Uber pumper. And then the (laughs) Uber pumper does its thing, and then your child is asleep, and it wakes the baby, and it's a whole thing. Yeah. No. Well, it's coming. Don't you worry. I know you don't want it, but it's a coming. You know why? Because I just thought of it. Way to go, Wayne. So it's coming one way or another. It's KFI AM640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.